Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And we're very fortunate to be um, uh, joined by a very special guest from the, from the other side of the Atlantic. James, who are we talking to today? Well, we're, we're talking to someone who's become a firm friend of the podcast, um, Mark Milner, um, who um, listeners will remember from giving them um, such a fantastic discussion about the Atlantic War, as we're now calling it, um, uh, a few months ago. Well done. Um, well done. Uh, and Mark hasn't only just <laughs> written about the Battle of the Atlantic, he's, he's kind of sort of, he's moved on to dry land and um, did a fantastic book called Stopping the Panzers, The Untold Story of D-Day, which really charts the uh, primarily the Canadians running up against full throttle of the 12th SS Hitler Jugend Division who are arriving into the D-Day bridgehead. Well, the first troops very much on the night of D-Day itself. And and then, then they have this sort of massive series of engagements, very traumatic engagements, on the 7th of June, um, and without wanting to kind of steal all Mark's sandwiches, um, they do incredibly well. And, and I've got to say, this book completely, um, w- w- it was just, it, I mean, Battle of the Atlantic was invaluable to, me, valuable to me when I was doing War in the West. Stopping the Panzers was invaluable to me when I was doing my Normandy book. Uh, and, and I just, you know, I've been saying it for years, the Canadians are just so undersold um, in the Second World War, you know, when it comes to kind of the effort and the influence they have um both on uh, on the sea on land and in the air it's absolutely incredible but but this is an amazing story which just is traditionally not being part of the narrative so mark it's great great to have you here to kind of you know sell it for the canadians on d-day and and immediately afterwards and the kind of incredible effort they do it's stopping the kind of ss juggernaut well thanks for the opportunity any chance to talk about the canadians and um and normandy Look forward to it. James, what, what are you writing about next? Has Mark covered that too? That's my immediate thought. <laughs> well, actually, well, Mark's on it the other way around in this particular occasion, although I don't think he's paid much attention to what I've been writing about because he's doing all his own research. But you're doing, I mean, we were talking about it when we just before Christmas, Mark. You're, you're in the middle or, or you finished um, a, a big work on the, on the wider Normandy campaign. Well, I, I, I'd like to say I'm finished. I, I started out, uh, geez, five years ago this winter to write a short essay to get me to 1939, and I'm now up to 21 chapters and uh, about 1,500 pages, and uh, I've fought my way to the end of June. I set out to write one chapter <laughs> oh, on... This is, you know what this is sounding uh, yeah. like? This is sounding like Peter Caddick. Well, here's the deal, and you probably understand this. My old supervisor used to say, we write to know. Yeah. So, you know, I often told my graduate students, you can write the first paragraph, but how do you start the second one? And, and what do you put in it? And where do you go from there? So the problem I've had with this whole story is every time I bump into something, uh, I realize I don't know anything about it. And then I realize that what I've read is only a partial story. And then I start digging. And before you know it, instead of writing a, a short chapter, I've got 65 pages and a completely different way of looking at um, you know, what's transpired. So I, I seem to have found myself rewriting the Second World War, unfortunately. <laughs> but have you got, I mean, what, what are your kind of, um, you know, I'm not trying to kind of reduce it to nothing, but, 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 but what are your sort of, your big takes that you feel haven't really been brought to the forefront in the past that you've suddenly thought, oh, hang on a minute, why, why, are, we, why are we not looking at it in this way? I mean, what, what are the big things? Well, one of the big takeaways I've gotten from this, and I was kind of poking around, is the extent to which uh, Operation Overlord is an overwhelmingly British operation. When you start looking at uh, you know what individuals are doing, and history tends to be written as national narratives, you forget 
that much of the shaping operations of Overlord were done by the British, um, either in the air or especially at sea. I mean, it's it's just it's, it's yes. difficult for Eisenhower to actually get ships out of Ernie King to support the operation. Um, so that tends to be forgotten. They, they tend to forget that um, 80 percent of the assault forces and virtually all of the initial um, maritime support in terms of uh, logistic support, small ships getting stuff to the beach is organized by the British. Um, the Americans, I, I, I'm, I'm sad to say, are really not very generous when it comes to writing about what other people are doing to help them. <laughs> um, you know, you can, you can go to you can go to Point to Hawk any number of times, and I defy you to find out how many British sailors were killed, wounded, or missing putting the the Rangers ashore at Point to Hawk from the Ben Mai Cree. That was a British assault landing. The, the Rangers who landed on Omaha Beach were landed by the Brits. The Omaha Beach was swept by the 34th. Canadian minesweeper flotilla. They were within a mile and a half of the beach at four o'clock in the morning. Um, yeah. So the first people in, to Omaha Beach were actually a bunch of Canadian minesweepers. So there's a huge amount going on. And um, uh, until the end of June, uh, there are more Anglo-Canadian forces in Normandy than there are American. Yes. So, uh, so Overlord, um, it, it, and what I'm tracking is the way in which the American media and the British media tried to sort all this stuff out and, and create, if you like, a narrative. If, if, if journalism is the, the first draft of history, um, then the Brits get written out of the Normandy campaign right from the get-go. I mean, the whole thing, uh, after all, the, the Americans have a mulberry, don't they, which is a British idea. It's a British... A, Brit a British approach, isn't it? So even in even in that aspect, the British are dominant of of how we're going to do this, how we're going to 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 run this thing. I mean, that's that's an excellent excellent point you're making, Mark. Well, listen, obviously the American media goes into fits of apoplexy trying to explain to the Americans how Montgomery is not actually in command. Right. Uh, American uh, news magazines do a fairly decent job of trying to explain this. But I've been going through the, the papers of Ernest Dupuy, who's the director of public relations for Chafe. He's an American. He's a colonel. Uh, done a lot of work for the U.S. Army. And he says as early as April, he says, you know, it, we can't sell this to Americans. They, they just don't understand that the American landings in, in Normandy could be under British command. And there's a really nice comment from the British Information Service on, uh, I think it's the 22nd of June, reporting on the state of uh, newsreels being shown in American theaters. And their comment is, the newsreels are still gagging over the fact that Montgomery's in command of the land operations and Ramsey's in command of operations at sea. Because they tend to equate Admiral Kirk, who's the Western Task Force commander, which has a, a huge British presence in it, by the way, as being the equivalent yeah. of, Abs of Admiral Ramsey, who's actually the overall Neptune commander. Yeah, yeah. So they're 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 just they can't they're having real problems because um, the Americans are convinced that it's an American operation and they can't figure out why the Brits and the Canadians are there. I mean, I mean, the interesting <laughs> thing the interesting thing is is that there's incredibly good reasons for this. I mean, you know, the the, the American the U.S. Navy has got his hands full in a very full way in the Pacific and is doing a, a you know incredible job out there. And, you know, Britain is the kind of host nation for the launch pad, you know, all the yes. infrastructures there. And, you know, there's, there's an incredibly good reasons for it. So it's not, it's no one, no one's dissing the Americans, you know, no one is belittling the effort of the Americans, you know, which is, which is considerable in the second world war. And it's considerable in the Normandy operation as well. It's just, what you're saying, and, and you know, obviously, I completely agree, and it's what I was saying in my Normandy book, is that actually, it's just the history, the narrative of, of the Normandy campaign has just been completely distorted. So much so that you can now bring American tourists can go over to over to Normandy and kind of stand on Pont d'Arc, not, not have the faintest idea there are even British or Canadians involved at all. But, 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 to, but to take this point forward, I think... Uh, um, from the British perspective, the Canadians are absent also. So, um, uh, yes. you know, in a British popular telling of, of or imagine the you know the imaginary picture. Well, of they certainly don't get the credit they deserve. So that that's that's the same thing, I think. And so here we are. To, that's exactly what we're here to talk about. And um, yes, to, and to literally put it on the map. And I, Mark, I imagine you're familiar with the Project Forty Four thing i mean i've got that in front of me so that when you take us through the, the, the story of this battle I, I can i can literally picture 
um, what's going on. Um, because the Canadian contribution is is essentially at the at the at the pointy end is a third of a third of what the the British or Duke forces are bringing to Normandy, isn't it? Essentially, eventually, yeah. I mean, the, we can yeah. we're going to talk about that. The, the original plan was to have First uh, Canadian Army, all five divisions ashore by the end of D plus fourteen. Right. So that you know, the Cossack plan gets changed. But listen, the the British neglect of the Canadians, if if you want to call it that, is actually calculated. It's it's part of the plan because uh, the British realize, and, and we this is you're right, James. This, there's a huge context here. 1944 is not only an election year. This is one of the things I'm exploring in this book. It's also the year when there's a meeting at Bretton Woods about whether the future is going to be the U.S. dollar or the British pound, whether the economic heart of the world is going to be New York or London, and the Brits are into it up to their eyeballs, trying to actually salvage if that's the right word, might be a little too strong, but salvage uh, their position in the post-war world that's going to be dominated by American money, American economy, and American military power. And they can't afford to have the Canadians shaken out of the British Empire effort. So there's actually a concerted effort in the period before D-Day to subsume the Canadians under British and the Canadian government pushes back and the Canadians push back. And there's quite a little tale to be told there about, you know, do we even say that they're Canadians? The Brits want to say Anglo-American and allied. And the Canadians go, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we've got a huge presence at sea. And you may not know this, but 83 Group, RAF, is actually an RCAF group. It was established in the fall of 1943 uh, to be the Canadian group which would support first canadian army which would be part of the assault on normandy and we can talk more about that but when first canadian army gets the boot at the end of of december they ask 83 group what do you guys want to do do you want to you want to stay in in the you know leading edge be the first group ashore or do you want to stick with first canadian army and come in sometime later and the air force says hell with you we're going straight in 83 group um it never gets fully developed after that because uh, the decision to switch it to Second British Army gets the Canadians to back off. But the Canadian plan at the end of '43, and it's only partially achieved, is to have all the headquarters, all the support, all the hospital, all the maintenance, everything, and most of the squadrons, RCAF, all paid for by the Canadian government. So half of 83 Group is actually RCAF, and a large portion of its maintenance and support are RCAF. Um, it's not what it would have been had it uh, been left with the Canadian Army. So it's about 50-60% Canadian. Um, so the, the Canadian group supports Second British Army, and then a kind of polyglot group, 84 group, which has a lot of European uh, squadrons, uh, European Air Force and Exile squadrons, ends up supporting the First Canadian Army when it finally gets operational in July. So there's a huge Canadian air component, and uh, when um, when um, the uh, the longest day aired in Toronto uh, in the 1960s, did a kind of premier airing. Uh, um, it, it uh -oh. actually got booed <laughs> by Canadian yeah. veterans because what they showed for Spitfires were two French Spitfires, where the largest support on that day, if it wasn't British, was probably Canadian. Anyway, so there is a plan to actually write the Canadians out because the Canadians need to be part of the empire, and uh, yeah. we refuse to get in the we refuse to get in the boat. We just say, no, you guys, you know, do what you want, but we're Canadians. And in the end, they do. They, they win out, and uh, they get they win out because they get support from the Americans who say, "You guys, you have to recognize what the Canadians are doing. It's pretty important." Um, anyway, I've tracked all that. Uh, I've tracked all that in one of these enormous, uh, outlandishly long chapters, which I've completed. Sorry, but the Americans the Americans aren't doing that to boost the Canadians. They're doing that to undermine the British, aren't they? I mean, it, it, the, the, yeah, very, you know, that's, how, <laughs> that's how American power works, doesn't it? Is, uh, well, the, the Americans know that the Canadians, and we should talk about that. The Canadians have been central to the to the Overlord planning from 1942 onwards. Yeah, and um, when the when the film um, the the uh, documentary that's released. At the time of the D-Day landings, um, geez, oh yeah, I can't remember what it's called either. Is, is it Spearhead? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, something like uh, that. The, Amer the Americans actually complain and, and tell them, "You got to take this back. You got to put some Canadians in it. Got to put some Canadian footage. You got to put some recognition of Canadians in it because it's just so biasly pro-British." And uh, it comes too late. <laughs> it comes too late. They don't have time to fix it. So it, uh, what you see when you Google it uh, and watch it on YouTube 
is uh, is not what the Americans and even the public relations people at Shafe wanted, but it's what we got. Right. So God, we should talk about stopping the Panzers, or we'll, we'll be done. Yes. So so <laughs> the, the the point about stopping yeah. the Panzers is that that the Canadians push forward towards Caen on D plus one, and they come full whack into the 12th SS Panzer Division as it's arriving into in, in, into the front. And a whole, you know, it's, it's not a, an entire division to start off with, but, but you know, the Canadian 12th Hitler Jugend are bristling with firepower, they're bristling with, with equipment, they're bristling with men, they're motivated, they're gung-ho, and they effectively come up against kind of two battalions of, of infantry, not much artillery support until later in the day, and literally a handful of tanks. And the Canadians check them. And I mean, in a nutshell, that's it, isn't it? But it, but it, it's an incredible a feat of arms, a defensive action, really. I, I, yeah, it, it's actually worse than that, James. Okay, go on, because um, the historians have tended to focus on the Canadian battle with the 12th SS, and they forget that there's a whole Airsatz Battalion of 716th Division actually occupying the villages that the Canadians are going through. Um, by one estimate, Les Buissons, Buron, uh, Auti uh, have about a thousand infantry from uh, 716th Division that have escaped from the beach right. defenses and have been pulled together in Kampf Group Route. Yeah. And so they're actually in place. You can argue about their combat uh, ability and their sort of will to fight, sure. uh, but they're they're there. And you know, a thousand guys with a lot of guns—that's uh, that's a major project. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there are there are. I tried to track. Uh, for that book, and I'm I'm still tracking that stuff. Um, uh, about uh, maybe a third of 21st Panzer is in the area. Yes, they are. Yeah, it's in the va- yeah. It's in the valley of the Mew. Uh, they are in Buron and Auti and Les Buissons. Excuse me, and they're over in the front of Third British Division over at Galmanche yep. and Calm and Saint Contest. Um, so there's already I, I I I tried to do a kind of calculation I think for that book and, and came up with the fact that Canadians were outnumbered probably three to one, but possibly as much as four or five to one once you throw Twelfth SS into the mix. Yeah. So it's uh, and they're attacking at least initially. Yeah. So um, I think the training is superb. We should go back and talk about what it is they are expected to do. Uh, so they, they take on a huge number. And uh, I tracked this down, and it's interesting that um, the, the Canadian official history says nothing about anybody other than 12th SS. Uh, it, it's a great failing of Charles Stacey's book that he didn't actually go back and read the narratives prepared by his own historians in 1944, which would have given him a better idea of what, what was actually happening. Uh, but we did not have good intelligence at the time. And when they were writing the history in the 1950s, they did not have uh, good access to all the German documents for reasons of, uh, well, not quite clear. Uh, so they, they were not sure how many they were actually up against. And by any way, in any event, it was already at that point seen as a failure. And so I think there was a tendency to say, you know, we'll just write it up as a failure and, and we'll let it go. But we should go back and talk about what it was the Canadians were supposed to do, right? Yeah. Their, their op order, right? So the way I've often explained this to, um, uh, in terms of stopping the Panzers to, to uh, groups I've spoken with is you need to think of it at, at kind of two levels. Um, one is that the Canadian, first Canadian Army was by 1943 the single most combat ready force in the British Isles. So there were five divisions, two armored brigades. Uh, 2nd Canadian Corps headquarters was not really up to speed. They were still in the process of kind of coalescing. Uh, they hadn't done well in Exercise Spartan in March of 1943. But 1st Canadian Army had been the, the force, if you believe, Andy McNaughton that had defended Britain from invasion. And then it flipped over into a, a counter-invasion force. Um, it, it was euphemistically described as a dagger pointed at Berlin. Uh, and that was really meant to be for um, Operation Roundup. If, if the Germans collapsed, they were going to chuck the Canadians ashore and they were going to drive. And kind of like the Foco theory, kind of like um, Castro marching on Cuba, the hope was that the forces in Europe would rally around this spearhead and you know off we'd go and the Germans would collapse as they had in 1918 and it would all be good. But that said, it's actually training for uh, uh, an amphibious assault in uh, 1943 against a defended beach. Um, and if you read some of Freddie Morgan stuff and you go through the Cross Act planning documents, the Canadians are actually central to uh, all the planning for the Second Front. 
1943. Um, the original Cossack plan had uh, 2nd British Army doing the assault, uh, and they're just beginning to pull that together in the summer of 1943. 2nd British Army headquarters was not very well developed. Uh, and then the the exploitation force was going to be 1st Canadian Army. And if uh, Freddie Morgan had his way, by D plus 12, D plus 14, there would have been seven American divisions ashore, six British and five Canadian, plus the two Canadian Armoured Brigades. And it would be, uh, the, the plan was uh, that the Canadians would come ashore as they'd be the exploitation force. When 1st U.S. Army gets involved in the planning in the fall of 1943, what Morgan does is shift the planning uh, so that 1st U.S. Army does the attack and uh, then 1st British Corps goes ashore and then 1st Canadian Corps goes ashore and when those two British Commonwealth formations are ashore, the first headquarters to arrive would be 1st Canadian Army. Hmm. And the, the army that would arrive later would be 2nd British Army. And that plan uh, in several permutations survives until the end of December. And we'll talk about why that fails. But, but if Morgan has his way, uh, <laughs> the fall of 43, D-Day is going to be a North American operation. Yeah, it's going to be the yeah. Americans and the Canadians. First U.S. Army, first Canadian Army, side by side on the beaches of Normandy. Well, what uh, 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 we need to talk ultimately about the armored attack, but just very quickly, what kicks the struts out from underneath that plan is um, Brooke doesn't like um, uh, McNaughton, Andy McNaughton. They've had an ongoing feud since 1917 at, at Vimy when Brooke was serving <laughs> in the uh, Canadian Corps artillery. Um a lot of people in the Canadian Army don't like Andy McNaughton because they think he's kind of stodgy and a bit of a gunner and maybe too slow. Um, and he's, an, he, he's, he's a guy that kind of grates on people. So anyway, even the Minister of Defense in Canada doesn't like Andy McNaughton. And the other problem for Canada, we talk about politics, is the, the Canadian Army needs to get in the fight because the Canadian government is, uh, is on the ropes politically. And so they, they contrive to get 1st Division into Sicily. And then when that doesn't cut much ice home politically, they contrive to send out 5th Armoured Division in the headquarters of 1st Canadian Corps. So by the time you get to October of 1943, 1st Canadian Army in the UK consists of 2nd Canadian Corps, not much else. So the plan initially is to, well, we'll just we'll, we'll kind of stick 1st British Corps in there and then it'll be 1st Canadian Army. Maybe we'll call it 1st Anglo-Canadian Army. And then this goes, oh my God, but you can't have Andy McNaughton uh, commanding it because he's he's a disaster, according to some. So they contrive to uh, confront him about his illness, about his ba his exhaustion from you know being uh, at the at the job for too long, and the government finally convinces him that uh, he needs to go, and they sack him in early December. So that by the end of December, First Canadian Army's in a bit of a shambles, and uh, I don't think it would have survived Montgomery's arrival uh, because uh, when Montgomery comes back. And the initial joint plan expands the front. It's got to be an Anglo-American operation for international, yeah. diplomatic, political, economic, you name it. It can't be an American-Canadian operation. It's got to be Anglo-American. Um, so 1st Canadian Army gets the boot. Even the Germans notice this. They say uh, well, there's actually a, an international news broadcast on, I think it's Oceana, which is the German international radio broadcast service that, that talks about the sacking of Andy McNaughton and how he actually quit because he's had enough Canadians butchered by the British. He doesn't need to have them now butchered by Eisenhower and the Americans. Anyway, so the Germans <laughs> are tracking this. So 1st Canadian Army, which is always seen, and this is important when we get around to stopping the Panthers, always seen through 42 and 43 as the lead horse in the opening of the second front gets the boot. So uh, what the Canadians were going to do, and I found, it, I found it really hard to track this, but I did track it in stopping the Panzers, is everybody's worried about the Panzer counterattack. Where is it going to be? How big will it be? Where And, and when will it arrive? And the critical ground they end up talking about is either side of a little river called the Mew, M-U-E, which doesn't feature at all in the Normandy literature. Um, but it features in the Canadian literature and it features uh, in the German planning. Um, and I have to tell you a little war story about this because I, I backed into this subject really accidentally. I had a, I had a grad student who uh, was doing a thesis on um, uh, naval fire support, a guy named Dan Malone. 
Hi, Dan, if you're out there. Great thesis. Um, and, uh, and Dan, uh, uh, about 20 years ago, Dan produced the, uh, the deployment plan for the Canadian artillery on D plus one. And I looked at that and I thought, holy shit, that's an exceptional amount of artillery. And we need to talk about that. And it's actually either side of the Mew River. And look at all those anti-tank guns. They're just anti-tank guns everywhere. What the hell are these guys doing? And then the little kind of light went on in my brain. It's like, holy shit, I know what they're doing. They're actually getting ready for a Panzer counterattack. Because if you, <laughs> at that point, I had walked the ground probably a half a dozen or ten times. I knew it quite well. Um, I knew the Great Plain on either side of the Mew River. And I thought, damn. I bet you that's what it is. And that's really what started stopping the Panzers. Right. I just started, you know, opening up documents and turning over rocks and, and finding two things. One is that the Cossack planning exactly identified that ground as the key ground for a major Panzer counterattack. And I, I couldn't find any reference to it in, in, uh, in most of the German sources. I didn't have time to, to do this uh, to get to a German archive. Um, but I began to dig into old, old books. If you want a new idea, get into an old book. So I started reading the, the, uh, the memoir literature and some of the books from the 1940s. And uh, what, what it began to reveal fairly quickly is that that's the ground that Rommel had identified as the key ground. And he wanted four panzer divisions on that ground by the end of April 1944. So both sides identify it as the key ground. So at some point, and I've never found the smoking gun on this, I've found the result, but I've never found the planning document. At some point, the Canadian division gets armed to the teeth. Third Canadian division is the single most powerful allied division to land on D-Day, mm. bar none. It's, it's, it has just a staggering amount of firepower. Um, and, and, you know, you've, James, you've read about it in, in that book. The average British Commonwealth division has 72 field artillery pieces. The Canadians get 144 wow. for the beachhead battles. Wow. Six field regiments, four of them self-propelled yeah. and two attached <clears throat> British 25-pounder towed regiments. Then they get the 79th medium regiment under command. That's, I think it's 16 4.5-inch guns. And then you look around and you discover that they've actually also assigned to them the British First Corps Anti-Tank Regiment, 62nd uh, Anti-Tank Regiment, which um, is, uh, is the core anti-tank regiment. But it's actually deployed in the Canadian zone to protect all this artillery. So the Canadians just have a staggering amount of artillery attached to them. And every company that comes ashore with the Canadians, every company gets a foo. Yeah. There's so much artillery wow. that, that every company gets a foo. Not every battalion, every company gets a foo. There are four foos per battalion. So they come loaded for bear. They, they don't, and one of the interesting things about this, of course, is they, they can't get everything ashore because of the storm. Yep. Everybody, everybody says, oh, the Germans can't get there because there's an Allied air attack. And blah, blah. Well, you know, there's 100 miles of open sea with most of the tail of a storm raging. Uh, there's a break on Tuesday, the 6th of June. They get some ashore. But they can't get most of the anti-tank guns ashore until about the, um, D plus 3. Anyway, so the Canadians come loaded for bear. And if you read their op order, which I think is really kind of interesting, um, and you read other op orders, the Canadian operation order for 3rd Canadian Division says, your job is to establish fortress positions astride the Combayou Highway at Puto, Nori, Brettville, Carpique Airfield, and stop the counterattack. Yeah. And the reason, let's just, uh, just, just pause that a second, because the reason why this is the obvious ground is because to the east of Coin, you've got you've got the ridge that runs down to the uh to the sea which the paratroopers and and so on are, um, the airborne troops are trying to get hold of and you've also got the bugabos ridge and it's it, there's not so much room for maneuver in that area but round to the west of con you've got this big kind of open it's not bocage here this is big wide open films this is this is the area through which epson later passes at the back end of june but but it's so obvious that this is the place through which panzers have a have a, a clear clear frost to the sea we need to take a break right now we'll be back after these propaganda messages from the world of capitalism
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Ask Mark, is there chatter from the Germans? Have they they identified that this is what Rommel wants to do from Ultra? Or is this a is this a reading of the land and understanding the topography and the maps? To the best of my knowledge, it's just good basic military engineering. They look at the right, ground. Right, okay. Now, listen, uh, that said, uh, James is absolutely right. Um, it, 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 you need depth. The ground north yeah. of Caen, if you go from Caen to Langrun to go all the way up to Sword, that's yeah. much better ground. It's and much of it's much more open, but there's no room to echelon Panzer divisions in depth. Once the British get to the Bassi and get down to Calm and and you know put you can't yeah. echelon Panzer divisions in an urban area, which is what Caen is. And uh, the the airborne take the bridges, so you can't come across that way. But um, it's interesting that 21st Panzer was garrisoned uh, in that very ground west of Caen, uh, echelon down the Orne River Valley and across the Odon in the period before D-Day. They had most of their anti-tank strength actually deployed in the zone that the Canadians would attack on D-Day and D plus one. And then the, to me, the telling point in all this, the kind of continuity of the ground and its importance is that when von Kluge takes over as CNC West, in early July 1944, the first thing he plans is a major Panzer counterattack down either side of the Mule River Valley. It's the <laughs> it's the only place where you can actually, you can use tanks everywhere, don't get me wrong. I mean, you're gonna find Panzers yeah. everywhere. But if you wanna mass them, if you wanna stack three or four or six, one behind the other and make it three across, and you wanna be able to rip around, this is the ground that you need. And the other thing is, once, once you get to the beach, in theory, you could just swing left, slip over that big broad uh, crest uh, that is uh, in behind the Seoul River, and then just pour down onto the Great Plain in front of Gold Beach, and you know keep heading west. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't think most Germans, with the exception of Rommel, uh, maybe Schweppenberg, understood what happens when you bring mass tanks within range of naval fire support. But uh, so I don't think the I don't think the German counterattack could have got really nasty. But gee. If you have Warspite and and Belfast and and uh, Ryan and and a whole Agincourt, whatever it is, blasting away at you, uh, you're not going to get too far. But the point is, is on on D plus one, they're not doing that because there's a there's there's a hiatus, isn't there, where the where the uh, 
the link that there's isn't there a radio if i remember right there's a sort of radio breakdown they can't get the, the offshore naval guns to support them so you really do have and the, and the artillery the mass of artillery is is kind of directed isn't it towards um Duvra and 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 so you have these these battalions infantry battalions out on a limb to the kind of northwest of of Caen, confronting this mass of German forces, whether it be the 716, whether it be the 12 SS, or whether it be the 21st Panzer. I mean, the bit I was particularly talking about was the was the bit you know around Buron and all the rest of it, where where the Seventh um, Infantry Brigade, Canadian Seventh Infantry Brigade, comes up against the the, the uh, um, comes up against 12 SS. But but you know they haven't got the fire support when they first come up against those troops. That's the point, and so they have to. They have to give a little bit, then hold a, quite a lot, and then eventually the firepower kicks in. But it, but there's, there's there's these moments in the kind of early part of the day and, and all through the morning until the middle of the afternoon where where not very many infantrymen are holding an awful lot of Germans with not a lot of support, and that's that's the key thing. And, and yeah, it, it's really. And, and the, I just going to say it's really. It, go on. It, it, there, there is a colossal artillery failure on D-Day, uh, on the Canadian front. Yeah. And and I spoke to uh, to several people uh, when I started this project 20 years ago who were uh, still alive in Compass Menta about, you know, you know, why didn't you guys fire? Said, well, there was no problem. There was no problem. We were ready to go. You know, so it was hard to actually get to the bottom of it because the old guys, uh, particularly in the in the gunners, knew that they had uh, there had been just a horrendous failure. Um, it, it's still a pretty slippery subject, but here's a here's a um, an army whose whole doctrine is predicated on massive fire support, as James quite rightly points out. And um, the actually, it's 9th Brigade. It's the Canadian equivalent of the Highland Brigade, North Nova Scotia Highlands. There's Stormont, Dundas, and Glengarry Islanders and the Highland Light Infantry um, who get down that road towards uh, Buron and Aughty. And they fight on the, the earliest I can, I can detect fire support for them is 7 p.m. in the evening, 1,900 hours. Uh, on, on, on the 7th, yeah, D plus one. And the curious thing is that my father's regiment, 13th Field and 12th Field Regiment, are only about 3,000 meters away across the Moo River in a little village called Bray. And they're in place by 3 o'clock. But there are no fire orders getting through. For whatever reason, uh, there is some speculation. The intelligence sergeant of the North Nova Scotia Highlanders, a guy named Langell, uh, said many years later that the Germans were actually jamming the radio frequencies. And you, those of you who know German units better than me will know that every German division has a, a radio counterintelligence unit and a jamming unit. So according to Herman Langell, not Herman, sorry, that's my neighbor at the cottage, the, Sergeant Langell, um, they, they, they couldn't get through. The... Um, the problem with getting access, they had a forward observation officer or forward officer bombardment from HMS Belfast with a radio link. And um, they found out later that he was so far forward that they needed to put a repeater somewhere between the area around Con and the beach in order for that radio link to be effective. Um, there are also problems with too many radios operating on the same frequency on that day. So uh, Belfast may well be firing, but she's not firing in support of uh, the advance of 9th Brigade. But there's a huge amount of German artillery firing. I, I counted it's probably in the order of 70 or 80 field pieces actually blasting 9 Brigade as it heads south. Well, 9 Brigade, 9 Brigade are kind of almost... They're kind of sort of uh, almost north of Con, aren't they? Kind of just just north northwest of Con, but it's but it's the Seventh Infantry Brigade that's sort of heading towards Nori and 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 round there. Yeah, Seventh Brigade gets a free pass on D plus one. There's nobody in front of them. They actually are are on their objective by noon. The tanks have actually rumbled. Uh, some tanks have, have actually moved south of uh, Nori. Yeah, Kuto, and they've got this big. They've Brazil. got this big kind of. Um, I mean, on the map, if you do look at kind of Project Forty Four, you can see there's this huge like finger. They do get through Nori, don't they? And then they get then they get pushed back when the twelve SS counterattack, and it all gets a bit. Well, messy. They, they, the original plan doesn't call for them to occupy Nori. It's one of those things where they get to Brettville and they look out, and you can you can do this even yeah, today. Yeah. You look out, and uh, and and Nori sits out there like a bastion. Yeah. And, uh, well, they get a Stu Tubb, who's a company. Uh, no, the infantry doesn't. The tanks probably do, and the, I know that there, there are certainly patrols. I, I talked to one guy who was in 13th Field, uh, who was surveying for gun positions. Who got to Carpique, right? On D plus wow. one. 
right? And it's really? kind of like, holy shit, there's Germans here. Get out, turn yeah, around, yeah, yeah. take off, <laughs> right? Uh, so the front, the front is very fluid. Uh, but seven seven brigade um, gets to its uh, its fortress position and they dig in, and they start laying on defensive fire tasks from from the two regiments and and uh, the whole shooting match, and so by the time the twelfth SS starts to probe and poke around, uh, seven brigade they're pretty well tucked in. They've got good fire support. They got their anti tank guns up, um, and they're ready. They're loaded for bear, and they uh, there's the uh, it starts that night, the night of the seventh, and runs right through to the end of the day on the tenth. Uh, the, the attacks that take place there, and they are intense, intense attacks. Um, as I said in the uh, in, in the book, to me one of the there's two really great stories here, and I, I had one group of Canadians at one point wanted to make a feature film about Gordon Brown and the defense of the Cardinville factory. It's often called the Cardinville Farm, but on the north side of the railway, that's still there, although it's in the process of being developed, is a little stone building that was a, a factory. And Gordon Brown, who was the company transport officer on D-Day finds himself in there with uh, about 45 men who were left over from D Company and uh, an entire new platoon of about 40 guys, uh, 20 guys, 40 guys, from um, the, who just come ashore on the beach. And they moved over from La Villeneuve and they've been told to hold this kind of outpost. And uh, Gordon Brown puts the new platoon in the orchard uh, just north of the uh, of the factory and then just basically builds a little fortress in the factory. and. Um, holds his ground there. And on the night of the 8th and 9th of June, uh, Brown records 20 Panthers uh, right around his little factory. Um, and he doesn't know what to do because um, he's, you know, you're not supposed to attack at night with tanks without infantry support. And at one point he crawls out into the orchard where he's got two of the battalion six pounders deployed. And he crawls out on his hands and knees and finds the sergeant who's in command of this little section of anti-tank guns and says, uh, why aren't you firing at the tanks? And the sergeant says, well, what do you want me to do with the tanks that are here in the orchard with us? And Brown <laughs> said he had, he had to stop for a minute. And as he listened, he could hear the, the, the gentle rumble of the Tiger's diesels or the Panther's diesels. And then he could see them and he counted them and there were six. My God. Right around this little space about the size of maybe three basketball courts. And stuck right in the middle is this little section of anti-tank guns with about a, a dozen guys around it. And uh, 16 platoon all dug in slit trenches wondering what the hell they're supposed to do next. <laughs> and um, so they, uh, uh, Brown concocts a plan with the, with the sergeant that they will attack the Panthers with sticky bombs. And anyway, Brown scampers back into uh, into the actual main building at Cardinville, and he gets back in, and then all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose in the orchard. They don't know what happened because everybody in the orchard actually was killed. Uh, many of them crushed when the tanks just drove over the slit trenches and buried them. Um, there were two wounded guys who were pulled out of that orchard later, uh, and they, they couldn't tell them anything. But the, either somebody got out to have a dump or, um, or the sticky bombs yeah. didn't work. <clears throat> but once they discover oh, that there are infantry around, then they start prowling around Gordon Brown's little um, little um, enclave, and his, his troops are gradually whittled down to about thirty odd guys, all of them with automatic weapons of some sort, uh, most a lot of MG forty twos and Schmeisers, anything they could get their hands on. And finally, sometime early in the morning, uh, the tanks drive away. And then the infantry wakes up and, um, and a company, uh, a company strength of about 250, right? Or 220 probably, um, which is the size of the average 12th SS company, comes surging over the rail line from the south from Cardinville Farm and surrounds this little outpost of Gordon Brown and his 30-odd Canadians. And, and Brown's freaking out because the hand grenades are coming over the wall and the Germans are coming in through the windows and they're dying. It's like a scene from Fort Apache. And he finally gets through to... Uh, to um, uh, Colonel Clifford, who's the commander of 13th Field, and uh, Gordon and, and Brown sends him the coordinates for the for the fire support, and, and uh, Clifford says, that's your spot. And Brown said, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. So Clifford <laughs> said, tell your guys to uh, get under, we'll have it there in a minute. And uh, according to Brown, it, wham, it just landed. Most of it on the rail line between the little uh, factory and um, 
Cardenville Farm to the south. The next morning, Brown went out and buried 50 German dead. The list of the German dead is in the Saskatoon, Saskatchewan archives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Wow. Mostly 12th SS, but some Panzer Lair. Um, and he buried them right across the road from, um, and they were since uh, disinterred and, and taken to Lacan. Uh, and, and Brown was just gobsmacked. So, you know, at first you attack with tanks in the dark, and then you attack with, with infantry in daylight with no tanks. And said, what the hell are these guys trying to do? But the defense of Cardenville Farm, if it had been an American incident, yeah, Spielberg yeah. would be making a movie. It, it's just that good. It's, it's just yeah. astonishing. Um, and the second incident, and then I'll stop talking. You can ask me questions, because we haven't talked yet about the complete stopping of the Panzers, um, is... Um, a fellow named Gordon Henry, who arrives uh, just to the southeast of Brettville on the morning of the 9th of June with uh, a troop of tanks from the Fort Garry Horse from Winnipeg. And, if, and his own troop is from the uh, 1st Canadian Hussars out of London, Ontario. And he's got uh, about 10 or 12 tanks. The, the information's not quite clear. Uh, and uh, about three or four of them, maybe half a dozen, are Sherman Fireflies. So he arrives just at the top of the railway, uh, southeast of Brettville, which is now hard to imagine because the four-lane highway runs through it. Just yeah. as a company of Panther tanks are coming out from underneath the bridge at La Villeneuve and going up that gentle slope towards Nori. And he catches them in flank. And uh, by all accounts, Gordon Henry himself, his gunner, a guy named Chapman, kills five Panthers with five shots in about four minutes. Oh, and he was lining up for his sixth when his troop sergeant, Art Boyle, um, put a round into it. Um, the, the Germans just scamper away. And when people asked afterwards, why wasn't Gordon Henry, you know, um, celebrated as some kind of hero? Because this is quite a remarkable accomplishment by any standards. Mm. Um, mm. His, his brigadier said, uh, we're not giving out gongs for people who do their job. Your job is to kill tanks. You kill tanks. Good for you. Keep up the good work. So there's a little Canadian <laughs> press story that comes out uh, about two weeks later about Gordon Henry and his tank, the Comtesse de Feu. But Gordon Henry's accomplishment, and actually the whole accomplishment of that little um, two troops of tanks, is just it's just not there. And again, if that had been, forgive me, a Brit, or if it had been an American, oh my God, it's, it's the stuff of movies. It's yeah. like Fury all over again, right? Um, and, and Gordon Henry just disappears after the war. I went to the First Desires Museum when I was doing research on this, and I asked about him, and they said, who? What? Um, no, never heard of him. So the, the Canadians are responsible in some ways for their own obscurity. We just, uh, there's a tendency, and you can see it in what we did in Afghanistan. You just go in, you do the job, you go home. It's all over. So when you read about the surge in Kandahar, the Canadians did nothing for five or six years. The Americans come in, they win the war. Um, the other thing we should, we should talk about just briefly, because I see we're running down, is... Um, that's all right. Uh, it's it, all amazing stuff. Yeah, 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 I don't want to keep <laughs> that, that rump of First Canadian Army. Remember, we left them earlier in the program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andy yeah. McNaughton had been yeah. sacked. Third Canadian Division's going across the beach, and Second Canadian Corps is kind of twiddling its thumbs in the UK. Um, that, that becomes the. I would submit, and I've argued in a couple of places, and I'm going to do it again. That becomes the beating heart of Operation Fortitude South. Now. Fortitude South, what becomes later known as Fortitude South 1. Because when George Patton is identified to the Abwehr, finally, as the commanding officer of 1st U.S. Army Group, on the 12th of June, everyone says, oh, well, it's George Patton. He's the, he's the guy who keeps the Germans fixated on the Pas-de-Calais. And, and I would argue that's not the case. The Germans are tracking where the Canadians are going. If you look at Roger Hetzke's official history, secret history of, of deception, um, the, the Canadian Army plays a pretty important role. He doesn't focus on it, I think probably because he didn't realize the extent to which 1st Canadian Army had been the, the, the go-to army, the public relations army for Operation Overlord. But the Canadians are deeply involved in the radio operations that take place uh, as part of Fortitude South. It's interesting that 1st U.S. Army Group consists of two armies 
It consists of Third U.S. Army, which is not yet formed. It, it's 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 well, it's formed. It's notional. The divisions are still sure. assembling, mostly in the Midlands and in the West. Um, First Canadian Army is assembled in Kent. They're the guys who are dragging their sleeve in the in the English Channel and uh, doing the movements. And it's interesting that um, uh, on the seventh and eighth of June. Second Canadian Division is undertaking amphibious training operations in the Medway River, and uh, it, it, the Canadians have been tasked to work on a, a potential landing in the Scheldt Estuary since September of 1943, and I haven't found that anywhere in the uh, Fortitude literature. It's in the Canadian uh, narratives, but it's not in the Fortitude literature. If you read Horst Boog's wow. book, The German Official History, there uh, on 6th of June, they're worried about a landing in two places. One is the Pas-de-Calais. And the other, he says, is the Scheldt. So if you look at uh, the planning for first U.S. Army group, the army that's going to do the assault is first Canadian Army. That's the assaulting army. There are two corps in first Canadian Army, second Canadian Corps, and uh, uh, forgive me, I think it's the eighth U.S. Corps, um, but don't quote me on that. It's first Canadian Corps. That's the designated assault force for first U.S. Army Group. They're the people who are supposed to go ashore. The Germans think there are 13 divisions in first Canadian Army. And I have to just read you, I have one smoking gun, which I'm going to burden you with. Um, you may know if you've tracked this, on the night of the 9th of June, the Germans make a critical decision to divert the panzer divisions that are supposed to be going west of Caen into the zone either side of the Mu River Valley. First SS Panzer Division, which is at garrisoned around Amiens, and 116th Panzer Division, which is at Mantes, west of Paris. Both of them are, in theory, en route to Normandy until the evening of the 9th of June, when a message comes from um, Garbo that it looks like a landing in, in Calais is imminent. Hmm. It's the day after, by the way, 2nd Canadian Division has just finished its training exercise in the Midway River. And they've taken their vehicles down to Southampton and along the coast, and they've begun to waterproof them and get ready to go. This is the article that appears in the Chicago Tribune on the morning of the 10th of June, 1944. It's Dateline, London, June 9th, 1944. German broadcasts predicted today that the Allies would soon invade Belgium between Dunkirk and Ostend, the radio said. And then it quotes, Divisions ready in northeast England have not yet been committed. It can be assumed that a big part of these forces will be thrown into some invasion attempt which should start within the next few days. Combined action is being expected somewhere between Dunkirk and Ostend. For this, special Canadian troops are in readiness. Special wow. Canadian troops are in readiness. Wow. So that rump of 1st Canadian Army diverts the Panzer forces at least for about 10 days huh. away from Normandy. 1st SS, and then Patton takes over on the 12th, and it becomes an American story. Right. And, and somehow that story of Fortitude South 2 gets morphed into Patton in April, yeah. May, and June leading Fortitude yeah. South 1, and it just ain't so. If you read Michael Howard's paragraph on it in Volume 5 of the British Official History of Intelligence, there's a whole paragraph in there about how Patton was crucial to this. There's no references, no citations, no documentation. There is none. So, you know, the Canadian moment in some ways is like a Roman candle. We go ashore, and by the way, on the 8th of June, 12th SS in front of the Canadians... Panzer Lair is deployed in front of the Canadians. A yeah. fair slice of 21st Panzer is deployed in front of the Canadians. And where does Rommel go when he goes to Normandy for the first time? Do you know? Guess. Yeah. He's within rifle shot of the Royal Winnipeg Rifles. He's either at Le Menil Patrie or he's at Cheux somewhere. But he's right in front of the Canadians. Took me a while to find that because he didn't go to the British <laughs> or American front, so nobody's interested. 
Anyway, so Schweppenberg, after the war, freaks out. He says, you know, we had a chance on the 8th of June. We had most of three panzer divisions lined up on the Mew. And we panicked, and we just didn't do it. And, um, you know, we had our chance, and the, the chance was gone. So the Canadians have this little moment where they kind of Roman candle in the Normandy campaign. They, 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 it, and everybody's busy describing everybody else's action. And it's a busy place, as James knows only too well. You try to write this up. And, man, there's actions across 100 miles of front. Um, and by the time it's all over, the Canadians are down about 3,500 guys. The Germans have dispersed elsewhere. Panzerlaire's gone off to Tilly to try to battle the British. Um, and First SS is kind of held in limbo, and, uh, and, and it takes a while for them to start bringing those Panzer forces in. And by the way, when they do eventually bring them in, they bring them into that area. Right. Yeah, of course yeah, it is. Yeah, west yeah, of yeah that's where they all go. Yeah, and there's, there's, there's those great German maps of Normandy where where they you can see it and they they list all the Panzer divisions at the front on the Normandy front. And you see the changes stuff. The concentration around that area is just extraordinary, really. Well, it's a 33 mile front apparently, and by by the time of Epsom, there are eight German Panzer divisions along 33 miles of front. Yeah. And the comparable American front running to the west by the time, you know, taking Cherbourg out of it is 55 miles. And there, there are elements of one because 2nd Panzer and 2nd SS Panzer kind of switch forces back and forth across that Comal Gap. So it's, um, as my father said, <laughs> sorry, I'm trying not to get uh, channel my father into this. He said, we were so incompetent that we only managed to hold 80% of the German tanks on our front for two months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's. So you can see where I, I inherited the kind of view of this. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I just, I, I, uh, I think it is amazing. I mean, you, you think about you, the point about, I suppose the 716 is, is, is not the best um, combat unit. They're kind of under under undermanned and under equipped and and all that kind of stuff. Twenty um, first Panzer is 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 cobbled together and is already in situ. But the the twelfth SS when it comes is 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 really is full of troops, highly motivated troops, pretty experienced commanders, all those kind of things. It's got all the weaponry, and it's coming in and they're being funneled straight in. And what they're coming up against is is. Yeah, they're just sort of pretty much stopped dead. And that is really impressive. And for me, it tells you a number of a number of things. It tells you, it suggests one option is that the 12 SS aren't quite as good as they're cracked up to be. Um, it tells you that, um, alternatively, the Canadians are much better than they've been narratively cracked up to be. And I would say that's absolutely the case. I mean, I don't, I don't think the... The 12 SS have been cracked up to be better than they are. I think they are a pretty good unit when they first arrive in in, in Normandy because of those factors, because they're motivated, because they're well equipped, because they're for the most part decently, you know, decently led. The Canadians absolutely cut it. I mean, they, they they do an incredible job of holding it. And then, as you rightly point out, Mark, when you then add in the 716 and, and large elements of 21st Panzer as well, it's a bloody good effort. It it really is incredible what they do. Um, you know, because, because because they're not because they're new to Normandy at this point. You know, we're talking D plus one, two, three, um, and and they haven't got all their ducks in a row at this point. And they haven't got all that. You know, they're getting their firepower together, but but this is a process as they're kind of coming off the off the landing craft and off the ships and all the rest of it. They're not all quite kind of in sync, and it is really those lead elements of infantry and a and a handful of tanks that are doing the hard yards in this instance, particularly on D plus one and two. And you know that's. That is very impressive, and it's an undersold story. Well, it's, when, when, it's when they're at their most. It's when the Germans vulnerable. are strongest, and they're the most vulnerable, and they they absolutely deliver in spades. Well, and don't forget that the uh, assault strength of Canadian companies, as with British companies, is 119. Yeah. They're not at full strength companies. They're they're much reduced, and the uh, the uh, 12th SS companies are about 220 men. And when they distribute the the pioneer battalions among them, some of them are actually 240 men. The, the Canadians describe waves of Germans coming across, the, the, and people say, "Oh, that's hyperbole." It's just a bunch of no. There were there were waves of 12th SS coming at them. Um, so the, all this, the, my final point, and I'm trying to resolve this as a Canadian because I I, my, I don't know how I'm going to do it. These are all volunteers. They're very highly trained yes. and they're yeah. exceptionally well motivated. What would Normandy look like if five Canadian divisions and two Canadian armored brigades were ashore in D plus 14? Would they have retreated from Villers-Bocage? Um, 
uh, you can't argue that the, that Tommy's no soldier. If you study Tilly Sursault, oh my God, it, you know the the Brit, and you look at what yeah. goes on in Epsom. But um, you know the Canadians uh, don't have the problem of of uh, that that Seventh Armor did with people who who thought that they had fought their war already, and they should be home, or with Fifty yeah. First Highland Division who said, you know, we we've, we've done this long enough. It's somebody else's turn. All five of those Canadian divisions just couldn't wait to fight the Germans, and I I, I haven't got it sorted out yet. But what would Normandy look like with two Canadian Corps and First Canadian Army ashore, and ready to fight by D plus fourteen? I don't know that it would have changed much, but I haven't sorted that out yet. And I'm not going to belabor the point, but, uh, you know. Well, what you can talk about very confidently, though, uh, is is what they actually did do with the resources they got. And that is indisputably incredibly impressive. Yeah. Well, Michael Reynolds said the defense of Puto Nori Brettville was one of the finest small unit actions of the Second World War. Full stop. Well, there you go. I think he's right. I think yeah, right. I would, I would, I would agree with that as well. Well, and um, you know, um, <laughs> I've said it many times, but it's yeah, well, their, their training was superb. <laughs> their training was superb. Their motivation was was uh, was outstanding. Their, their dedication to the cause and the Canadians carp afterwards about failures. Oh, we didn't get to Berlin. <laughs> anyway, we're, Canadians are kind of like Brits. We we tend to focus on I mean, uh, more on our failings perhaps than our successes. We're our own worst enemies. But Mark, why are they well motivated for a European war? Why? What's the? What's the? You know. What's what? what what's the? You know, because you can understand why. You know, it's a war of national survival for Britain. Um, and you know, because after all, the, the further the further you get from um, from uh, from uh, the United Kingdom, the harder it is to mobilise British soldiers for, to give a toss for why they're fighting. You know, the the, the desert. Iraq, Burma, the further away you get, the more more slippery the question of what you're doing this for gets. Why why are Canadians motivated to fight the Germans in... Is it round two? Is it Vimy? Is it yeah, it, uh, I think there's two things. One is the legacy of the Canadian Corps. Yeah. Our fathers and our uncles kicked some serious ass in 1918, and we're going to do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and so some of the... And I, I haven't got to those chapters yet, but some of the disappointment from Totalize and Tractable derives from the fact that they're not doing to the Germans in 1944 what the Canadian Corps did between the 8th of August right. and the 11th of November in 1918. So right. there's, there's, some, there's some gnashing of teeth over that. The second thing is, um, don't forget, Canada is, is actually a, a country that's globally engaged in the way that Americans are not. Yeah. Uh, we're part of the British Empire, part of the British Commonwealth. Yeah. Um, we, you know, we identify with with British interests. We're we're more attuned to what's going on in Europe, and uh, there's a strong sense in Canada that the Nazis are a bad bunch of bastards, and you have to stop them. If we'd done what we should have done in 1918, which has gone all the way to Berlin, we wouldn't have this problem. So there's a there's a very strong motivation to fix what was left unfixed that I don't find in uh, any discussion in the American combat motivation literature. In fact, Americans are, are complaining as it, through June that the Americans haven't figured out what they're fighting for, except that if they win, they get to go home. Um, Canadians have come to defeat Nazism. They've, they've, they've come to do it in Italy and they've come to do it in Normandy. And it's a strange phenomenon, but if you had asked people like my father, hey, join the army and why don't you garrison Iceland? They all would have defected. They didn't join the army to, to garrison. I mean, the, the Canadian army almost went stir crazy in Britain. There's a major crime spree in late 43 because there's nothing to do. Where are the friggin' Germans, right? Um, so <laughs> the Canadian army came to fight and they could hardly wait to get into combat. Now you could argue maybe by week two, some of them are thinking, hmm, maybe this wasn't, yeah. But the army was all volunteer. Uh, the leadership uh, at the at the battalion, company, junior leadership level was really quite good. Uh, there's been a, quite a quite a bit of new literature on um, you know why is the Canadian Army as good as it is, um, um, and um, uh, it it all argues that the training and motivation of uh, senior NCOs and junior battalion and and uh, unit level officers, is just really good. 
you know, you take a guy like my father, who's a depression era kid with grade nine education, and um, he was he was overwhelmingly impressed with his officers. There's none of this, you know. Hollywood tends to have officers being fragged, and you know, that's the six week wonder, or whatever, the six month wonder. My father was filled with nothing but admiration for the young foos who went forward and died in large numbers, and by Colonel Clifford, who while they were all hiding in a basement somewhere trying to avoid the Nebelwerfers, was out trying to get a bearing on the German mortar so he could engage them with counter battery fire. So uh, the whole army was like that. My uncle fought, by the way, in um, in uh, in Italy. He was in a rifle company for, uh, geez, uh, 16 or 18 months. He survived the war in a rifle company. And I asked him once, um, what did you think of the Canadian army? And he said, you know, said, we had a good little army. People were motivated, they were well-trained, and we chased those bastards up the boot of Italy, trying to, trying to get them, and, uh, and, and we fought well. And I don't know where that inner Führung came from, but the Canadians had it, and um, they were glad when it was over, but boy, they, were, they just thought the Nazis had to be stopped. Well, thank God they did. Thanks so much for talking to us about this. Um, I mean, obviously, we look out for the next subject um, James is going to write about, and uh, you'll have covered it. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're looking at my uh, cookie. Uh, well, thank uh, you for the opportunity. Exactly. This has been great. Uh, fa- uh, well, well, and stopping the stopping the Panzers. Um, well, while we were talking at a, mm. at a glance, is, is available. Um, yeah, um, uh, uh, in Kindle and all other formats. So, grab that, everybody, if you can, because it, um, it's. I mean, the problem with the the problem is, is as you say, there are so many plates spinning in Normandy that that you end up. An author has to pick pick. And an emphasis, don't they? Um, and especially if you're writing an entire campaign campaign history, things are going to slip through the cracks. But um, this this book addresses that um, uh, entirely. And it is a, it is an amazing you know. And the, and the other thing is is that no one no one goes to see the Mew, no one goes to Norrie, no. no one goes to Shoe and all these places. But I tell you what, it's really really worth it. It's absolutely fascinating. It really is fascinating. Well, let me tell you a good news. Let me tell you a good news story about that. Um, shortly after the book came out, I got a, a completely unsolicited email from a chap at the um, uh, West Point Military Academy, and he said, "I just wanted to let you know that we have added the advance of uh, the Canadians on D plus one and D plus to D plus three four as part of our battlefield wow. study tour. Uh, we've never done the we've never done the British and Canadian zone before, but we have to go study Fantastic. this battle. I don't know if they're still doing it, but um, yeah, people have have uh, begun to drift in. Americans, as a as a tradition, don't go to the Anglo-Canadian front. I remember Brooks Kleber, who wrote one of the volumes, and was actually captured in in. Um, in Normandy on the 9th of June, as a young subaltern uh, told me when I gave a paper at a conference once and he chaired the session. He says, uh, we, as Americans, we really should start going to the British zone. It's like, but but don't you? When you study Normandy? Apparently not. Uh, apparently they just go to, uh, they stay in Bayeux because uh, that's a good place to stay. And then they just drive the American zone. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we did, uh, when I did my little, when I did my little three-parter on Normandy um, a couple of years back, um, we went to OT and... Um, and Buron and uh, and told that story of the Canadians on on D plus one, and um, there it is. Excellent, thank you. Uh, well, and it, like I say, whatever Jim's writing about next, he can um, do his heavy echo. Um, well, thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you, thank you so much, Mark. It's always a pleasure. Um, okay. We'll see you again soon. Thanks, Thanks guys. everybody for listening. Uh, James and I will be back with more uh, War War Georgia um, uh, in your ears soon. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>